So it's a real delight, honor, privilege, joy to um, introduce uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, who's visiting with us tonight. Uh, if you've done any kind of reading in the scriptures or the Pali Canon, you've probably uh, known about Bhikkhu Bodhi, just to give you a little bit of a, a sense of what he does to stay out of trouble, <laughs> keep himself <laughs> occupied. Um, I don't think he has much trouble at all. Uh, this is the uh, uh, great classic that uh, so many uh, teachers and, uh, and Dharma students use, uh, the middle-length discourses of the, booty, uh, of the Buddha. Uh, whoa, I better watch it here now. Okay, I'm getting carried away. Otherwise known as the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, this is uh, translated uh, by Bhikkhu Bodhi and from uh, Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu uh, Nyanamoli's uh, original translation. This is a fantastic compilation, 152 of the most um, um, important discourses of the Buddhas. This one, and there is... Um, Two volumes of the Samyutta Nikaya, Connected Discourses of the Buddha, Volume 1, Volume 2. <laughs> this is a, a wonderful compilation. Um, great Disciples of the Buddha, edited uh, by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, their lives, their works, their legacy. Comprehensive Manual of Abhidhamma, uh, edited by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And this is a, a shorter uh, anthology, numerical discourses of the Buddha, uh, suttas from the Anguttara Nikaya. Um, if you like lists, this is the, the collection of all the Buddha's talks that have lists in them. And this is just a small anthology because uh, 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 Bhante uh, just shared with, with me today that he's uh, finally finished the whole Anguttara Nikaya, uh, which is like the two-volume set of the Samyutta Nikaya. Um, so he is an incredible uh, wealth of knowledge and, um, and inspiration uh, and... Um, just such a, a, a generous and, and brilliant mind and heart. And in the last few years, he's been particularly uh, even more inspiring. He's inspired me for many, many years, but in the last oh, five years or so, he's, uh, he's let his activist side full, fully <laughs> flower and uh, wrote a brilliant... Um, essay called A Challenge for Buddhists, and if you want to Google it, you can uh, read it online, A Challenge for Buddhist Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, where he says that uh, scholarship and meditation and purifying the mind isn't enough. We need to see how we can put our practice into meaningful action and help relieve suffering around the world. And then he 
walked his talk as he uh, as way led on to way and uh, was inspired first by the tsunami that uh, that went through Sri Lanka and um, and uh, um, Indonesia a number of years ago uh, in 2004 was it or uh, it was the end yeah, of 2004. yeah. And uh, wanted to do something, and out of that action, um, the Buddhist Global Relief Organization emerged, and he's been as uh, putting as much of his heart and his caring into uh, into that, uh, and inspiring many Buddhists as uh, in the same way that he put his heart and his caring into uh, into the translation in Pali Canon. So. Uh, it's a particular um, treasure and uh, pleasure to have you here. So please, venerable. And I want to say when you address a monk, if you haven't before, if you have questions or anything, that usually you, you, they're referred to as Bhante. So um, that's, uh, thank you for being here, Bhante. First, let me test this to make sure. I speak in a normal voice. Is it carrying up? Testing one, two. Testing. Testing one, two, three. No, that's too much. How about up in the top? Okay. Okay, first I'd like to thank James for his uh, sterling introduction and to thank all of you for attending this evening and to express my great pleasure in being here tonight. I just want to very briefly introduce two of our executive board members from Buddhist Publications. I'm not... <laughs> I've gone back <laughs> 15 years uh, from Buddhist Global Relief. The executive director is Kim Behan, who is in the corner here. And the chairperson of the fundraising committee is Sylvia Sun, who is in the back of the room. And we will do a little presentation about Buddhist Global Relief later, but first I will give a little Dharma talk. And I'll begin in the traditional way of paying homage to the Buddha. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Good evening, everybody. <coughs> At the beginning, I have to explain that I have maybe a certain 
inveterate problem embedded in my mind. You see, in Buddhism, we're sometimes told that we shouldn't think too much and try to figure things out, just let thoughts vanish into thin air. But I became a monk from a background of Western philosophy. (laughs) And so I'm always trying to look for structures, patterns, um, hidden blueprints, scaffoldings in the teaching of the Buddha, and then to try to bring them out into the open. And I was thinking to do something like that in my little talk here this evening. And one thing that I noticed that seems to be quite universal in the spiritual life, no matter what the religious tradition might be, whether Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, whatever, perhaps in other religious traditions that I'm not familiar with, but there's a tendency towards what we might call a double movement, that is, a movement from that on the one hand is the movement of ascent, that is, moving upwards from our ordinary, fallen, imperfect, flawed, defective, uh, misery-bound human condition to some state of wisdom, enlightenment, awakening, purity, liberation, freedom, moksha, unitive consciousness, whatever. The other movement is, we might call this the movement of descent, that is moving from this exalted position, this elevated position, back down into the world and re-entering the world in an act of engagement with the world in order to transform, uplift the people of the world to ameliorate their suffering and to lead them upwards according to their own capacity and one's own capacity towards the heights. We might consider using a kind of metaphorical language that the movement of ascent from the ordinary condition to the transcendent condition is a kind of expression of the (laughs) masculine consciousness, whereas the movement of descent back down into the world out of a kind of grace or compassion is an expression of the feminine consciousness. See, James, I'm learning to speak Brooklynese. (laughs) I've been here only not yet 24 hours, and I'm picking up the the language already. (laughs) Okay, so looking in the teachings of the Buddha, we could see that probably most of the emphasis is on the upward movement because the Buddha is dealing with you know, the great majority of people who are still bound within the cycle of birth and death, who are held down by the ten fetters, the four bonds, who are being carried away by the four floods, whose minds are covered over by the five hindrances, <laughs> the seven latent tendencies. <laughs> and so... The emphasis is on moving from this condition to one of awakening, wisdom, 
freedom, liberation. But we also find other formulas which sort of redirect us and redirect our gaze down into the world and which motivate us to re-engage with the world. Now, we find many formulations of the path leading upwards, but the one that I want to just deal with briefly this evening is called the five spiritual faculties. In Pali, these are called the Panch Indriyani. The word Indriya comes from the name of the chief god of the Vedic pantheon, Indra, the ruler of the gods. And so an Indriya is a particular quality of the mind which exercises control in a particular sphere of the spiritual life. And so we can see the spiritual life in its upward movement as unfolding through, as developing through, first through the unfolding of these five spiritual faculties, and then through their collaboration in achieving the goal of the Dhamma, the breakthrough to the realization of ultimate truth, the breakthrough to liberation, the deathless Nibbana. And so of the five spiritual faculties, the first one that's mentioned is sadda, a word that is usually translated as faith. Some translators use the rendering confidence, conviction, which to my mind seems a little bit weak. No, I'm speaking seriously, I'm not joking. But the word faith also maybe has some unfortunate connotations since those who come, particularly from maybe a Protestant Christian tradition, bring along the connotations of an obligation to believe certain revealed truths and to accept them unquestionably. But that is not really the distinctive mark of sadda in Buddhism. But rather, sadda is a kind of trust in the truth of the Buddha's teaching but it is also accompanied by a trust in the Buddha himself as the fully enlightened teacher. And so when one places trust, sometimes one can approach this faith through learning the teaching, investigating the teaching, examining how the teaching applies to one's own life until at a certain point, the doubts, the questioning, the hesitation, the skepticism, the kind of self-reserve breaks down, and then one is ready to commit oneself to the teaching and to the teacher. But for many people, sadha develops not only through examining the teaching, but also by examining and reflecting upon the teacher, the Buddha. When we look at the qualities of the Buddha as displayed in the various collections of his discourses, in the, especially in the narrative tradition of Buddhism, the very rich collection of stories, the Dhammapada commentary stories, the Upadana stories that come down from generation to generation, 
we see how the Buddha always acts with compassion, loving kindness, equanimity, with a kind of very distinctive wisdom and judiciousness and concern for others. This will inspire this quality of faith, trust, conviction in the qualities of the Buddha. One way that is often used in the Buddhist tradition to strengthen this sadda, which is a spiritual faculty, the first of the five spiritual faculties, is to recollect and reflect on the qualities of the Buddha. And this is done through a kind of systematic meditation, which I've managed to reduce from its complexities to focusing upon three qualities of the Buddha that we sum up in this verse of homage to the Buddha, Bhagava, Arahang, Samasambuddho. But I take them in a somewhat different order, beginning with Arahang. So we take Arahang as representing the perfect purity of the Buddha, the liberation of his mind from all of the defilements, whether it be the four influxes of defilements, the four asapas, the four floods, the four bonds, the ten fetters, whatever. But the Buddha is one who has eliminated all of these defilements completely, totally, irreversibly, so that they can never arise again. And so the Buddha's mind is utterly purified, and through that purification of the mind, he is liberated completely from the bonds that keep ordinary beings tied to the round of rebirth, samsara. The second quality of the Buddha that one focuses upon is represented by samasambuddho, which means that he is the perfectly or fully awakened one, the fully enlightened one, which I don't think necessarily means a commitment to the idea that the Buddha is omniscient, but it's the way I understand it. The expression refers to the Buddha's comprehension of all of the basic laws of the spiritual life. So he is one who has penetrated the Dhamma, the truth, the whole body of spiritual laws in their totality and who sees with sort of uncanning perscapacity, <laughs> is that correct? <laughs> um, exactly how to present the teaching to different types of people according to their different aptitudes, inclinations, capacities for understanding. And then the third quality of the Buddha that I like to focus on is represented by the designation Bhagava, usually translated a little bit unsatisfactorily as blessed one. But what it really means is the Buddha's fulfillment of all of the qualities that entitle him to take on the role of being a world teacher. And I see that all of these qualities spring from the Buddha's great compassion. And it's that great compassion that motivated him life after life after life 
to follow the path of a bodhisattva perfecting the ten paramis or paramitas until he becomes fully endowed with all of these excellent qualities. And so what one does to inspire this confidence is to actually do this as a kind of meditation where one takes a certain period, it could even be a short period, 10, 15 minutes, and visualizes very lightly, not in detail, an inspiring, beautiful image of the Buddha, and turns over in the mind these qualities of the Buddha, his perfect purity, the purity of his mind, his excellent wisdom, and his great compassion. As one does this, it strengthens this faculty of sadda or faith. And we have to remember here that faith is the first of the five spiritual faculties, and the Buddha calls it the seed of all wholesome qualities. And so all the other wholesome qualities that we develop in practicing the Buddha's path grow out of and evolve from the faith, the trust that we have in the Buddha as the fully enlightened teacher and in the Dhamma as the path to enlightenment and liberation. It's on the basis of this faith that one takes up the training, beginning with the ethical training, taking up the precepts. But it's the precepts themselves are not explicitly represented amongst the five faculties, but we come to the next two faculties, <clears throat> which represent the discipline of mind training, the actual process of cultivating the mind in order to unfold its latent potential. And so those faculties are energy and mindfulness. These two work together somewhat like two hands washing one another. So it's energy that, it's effort or energy that motivates us to train the mind. And it supplies that inner force or strength through which we can overcome and eliminate the unwholesome tendencies of the mind and strengthen and cultivate the wholesome qualities of the mind. So in fact, the whole practice of the Buddha Dhamma is actually the process of overcoming, reducing, and eliminating the unwholesome qualities or dispositions of the mind and then arousing, strengthening, and perfecting the wholesome qualities. And what enables us to do that is energy, which is the factor behind right effort in the Noble Eightfold Path. (coughs) 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 To cultivate the mind in the direction of liberation What is necessary is the development of right mindfulness. And so right energy is applied to the development of mindfulness, which is the, you might call mindfulness, the 
clear awareness, the present awareness of what is occurring in the four bases or foundations of mindfulness in the body, <coughs> feelings, states of mind, and phenomena. I don't want to go into a detailed explanation of <laughs> the practice of mindfulness, since that usually requires a whole series of lectures in itself. But we have these four foundations of mindfulness. And what mindfulness or sati is, essentially, is bringing the mind into the present with regard to these four groups of phenomena. Interestingly, the word sati, or in Sanskrit, smriti, originally meant memory or remembrance. And in ordinary usage in Sanskrit, it refers to memory of the past. But the Buddha somehow took this word out of the general usage in Indian culture and gave it a new meaning determined by his own teaching, which means not remembering the past, but remembering to keep the mind in the present. And so it's through the act of bringing the mind back into the present and keeping the mind focused upon its object consistently, repeatedly, noting whatever arises and bringing the mind back again and again, one develops the ability to sustain the attention in the present. And that sustained awareness of whatever is present is what brings samadhi, concentration. And that is the fourth of the five spiritual faculties. And so we have right effort, right mindfulness working together, the effort to arouse mindfulness, the effort to sustain the mindfulness. And when the mindfulness persists when it remains constant and steady, the mind settles in upon its object and remains focused upon the object and becomes unified and collected upon the object. And that collecting of the mind on the object, that sustained awareness of the object, is constant, what's called concentration or samadhi. One develops samadhi not as an end in itself in the Buddha's teaching, even though the experience of samadhi can be blissful, uplifting, joyful, rapturous, a kind of elation. But one develops this samadhi in order to move on to the cultivation of the fifth spiritual faculty, which is panya, or wisdom. And wisdom develops when one uses the concentrated mind to investigate the nature of our own experience. Our own experience is embodied or incorporated within this own, our own complex of body and mind. And so the whole, we could almost say that the whole world is present within this body and mind. So to understand the nature of the world, we turn the focus to examine the nature of body and mind.
And so usually, because the body is the somewhat coarser, more evident, one begins investigating the body. And so one examines the whole body from the top of the head down through all of the muscles and tissues of the body, right to the soles of the feet. And one sees that the body is a kind of mass of physical phenomena which are always changing, always arising and passing away. And so the development of insight begins with what is called samudaya atangamaya panyaya, which means the insight into the arising and passing away of phenomena. The insight into the arising and passing of phenomena becomes the insight knowledge of impermanence, that whatever arises within the body passes away. From the body, one could focus on the mind and mental phenomena. And one sees that we call what we conventionally call the mind is in fact also a process, a process of mental phenomena, of feelings, perceptions, intentions, plans, desires, dispositions, acts of cognition, which are always arising and passing away, arising and passing away. As one sees into the impermanence of bodily and mental phenomena, one sees that within this compound of bodily and mental phenomena, there's no ultimate security or safety or bliss. And so then one relinquishes the attachment to body and mind, and especially the identification with them as being mine and I. And in this way, the insight into impermanence and the unsatisfactory nature of body and mind becomes the insight into the selfless nature of body and mind. That within this compound of body and mind, what we call the five aggregates, there's no substantial self, no true self-identity. And so when one pursues the insight into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness to ever deeper levels, it brings the relinquishment of all attachments and ultimately the liberation of the mind. And so this is the, the movement of ascent in the Buddha's teaching, the rising up from the what I call the fallen condition, the condition of bondage, suffering, the condition of being overwhelmed with the mental afflictions and defilements, moving to the state of wisdom, enlightenment, awakening, and liberation. But there are other teachings of the Buddha which, in my understanding, are directing us towards a movement of descent of re-engagement with the world. And one set of qualities, I'm sure probably you've heard of these before, that seems to me to take on the cardinal role in this movement of the teaching are the four, sometimes called the four Brahma-vihara, the four divine states, four sublime states, also called the four immeasurable states, because Ideally, they are to be extended 
to all sentient beings. These four divine states are boundless loving-kindness, boundless compassion, boundless altruistic joy, and the fourth, upeka, sometimes it's translated equanimity, but I, in relation to living beings or sentient beings, perhaps it can be best rendered or explained as impartiality. The f- four divine abodes, it seems, are taught by the Buddha in a particular sequence, because generally we begin by wishing for the welfare and happiness of beings. And this is what is meant by loving-kindness, or in Pali, metta. So metta means that we take all living beings, we regard them as being like our parents, brothers, sisters, if they're younger, then as our sons and daughters, and we generate towards them the thought that just as I want to be well and happy, So all other living beings, especially for us human beings, want to be well and happy. And we dwell on that kind of reflection in our hearts till we gradually can generate a real strong feeling of wishing for the welfare and happiness of others. We expand that feeling beginning with people that we know, people that we have a kind of natural affection towards, till we expand it to our neighbors, our acquaintances, people who are just relative strangers to us, even towards our enemies, until we can extend it geographically till it embraces the whole world, even the whole universe with all of its different levels and dimensions of sentient beings. Once the strong feeling of loving-kindness is established, or I should say, because I don't want to give the impression we have to complete the development of loving-kindness before we move on to the next one, so I retract that. (laughs) But as we start to develop this feeling of loving-kindness, we can specifically focus in on those people who are undergoing suffering, misery, who are oppressed by tyrants, who are suffering from hunger or thirst, poverty, imprisonment, whatever. We choose certain people that we can see, or at least that we know about who are undergoing the suffering, and we generate towards them the strong wish that they will be freed from their suffering and that they will emerge from it and be released from that suffering. We expand that mind of compassion till, and we also expand our understanding of the different levels and dimensions of suffering until we can embrace in that mind of compassion all beings in the universe who are undergoing suffering. There's a tendency for the mind of compassion if it's not developed skillfully to bring us down and to overwhelm us with sometimes with sorrow and grief. And so to balance out that what do you call it, the depressing <laughs> aspect of compassion, we also cultivate the mind of mudita, 
which is altruistic joy. This means rejoicing in the good qualities of others, the success and the achievements of others. So normally one could take like a few friends who have some particular good qualities, who have achieved some success, and rejoice in their success. Particularly those who are undertaking the practice of Dhamma, who show that they're really dedicated to the practice, who are living virtuous, wholesome lives. One rejoices in that. Then in one's imagination, one could think of all of the great disciples of the Buddha throughout the world who are still alive, rejoice in their practice, their progress, their success. And then think of everybody in the world who has good, noble, worthy qualities and rejoice in those qualities. And then this gives a kind of happiness and upliftment to the mind. Then to quiet the mind and to establish the kind of middle way between the downward pull of compassion and the upliftment of altruistic joy, one develops the mind of upeka, equanimity or impartiality, which doesn't mean that one becomes apathetic and indifferent to others, but rather that one looks upon all beings, whether they are fortunate or unfortunate, with a kind of equal impartiality. And in this way, one sort of overcomes the emotional coloring of compassion and mudita, so, of course, it's good that they be emotions, they're wholesome emotions, but one sort of softens the downward-pulling tendency of compassion and the exhilarating tendency of altruistic joy so that the mind can remain in a balanced, steady, equanimous condition. Okay, so those are the four divine abodes which the way I see it, function as the factors behind the downward or descending movement of the Dhamma from the heights of wisdom or realization back into the world. But in actual practice, in actual cultivation, you shouldn't think, first I have to become fully enlightened, then I can start developing loving kindness, compassion, and so forth but it's rather constantly a kind of double process of development. Usually we have to begin with the upward moving factors, but as we start to make a little progress in that direction, we should give attention to the downward looking factors, to developing kindness, compassion, and so on. And to the extent that we go up, we strengthen our development of the downward moving factors. And so the two should always be held in balance until we reach the very top, where we have full awakening and liberation and also great loving kindness and boundless compassion. But one fact that we should also bear in mind, <laughs> this is the theme that I've been recently emphasizing, it's not enough simply to develop loving-kindness and compassion as inner subjective meditative states. That is important 
but we also have to find ways to put them into practice in this real world in which we are living. A world in which many people don't have the advantages, the privileges, the <coughs> access to the, to the opportunities that we have here in the United States. And so I say for any practitioner, we have to work in our own way according to our own interests, our own inclinations, our own talents to help make this a better world. And the way I suggest doing this, a practical way to go about doing this, it's based on sort of the advice of my friend Andrew Harvey. First you develop the meditations on loving kindness and compassion. Then at some quiet time of the day, you go into the meditation on compassion maybe for 10, 15 minutes, then come out and consider five or six different problems facing society, the world, the environment, the treatment of animals, nuclear weapons, the situation of tyrannical governments, many diff or several different areas that your mind tends to until you find one of them tugging at your heart. Examine that over and over, several days in succession, until you find the thing that is really breaking open your heart. And when you find that particular calling that breaks open your heart, then you can be confident that that is the particular way in which your inner qualities and the world are calling you to act in the world in order to improve the lives of others and to help construct a better world. Okay, when I sort of took up that challenge some years ago, about two and a half years ago, when we started to have these initial discussions that led to establishing Buddhist global relief, the particular quality that was really pulling at my heart was the problem of global hunger. Seeing pictures through my own experience living for many years in Sri Lanka where many people go hungry, even sometimes middle-class people during certain periods are just taking one meal a day. Periods spent in India seeing children walking the streets without any source of food, reading about hunger in countries in Africa, South Asia. So we took as the special mission of Buddhist Global Relief the problem of global hunger. And this led in the year 2008 to the foundation of Buddhist Global Relief. And now as part of the program this evening we would like to give a little slide presentation of the work of Buddhist Global Relief. And for this I'm calling <laughs> our shy but quite capable executive director, Kim Behan. Kim is originally from Vietnam. She first came to the United States in 1973. And wh where did you study when you first came to the United States, Kim? I spent uh, one semester at Berkeley. So she's an alum, <laughs> not a graduate, but an alumni of Berkeley. <laughs> 
Yeah, for 28 years, she was a software engineer with Avaya, which was a branch of Bell Atlantic, is it? Bell, Bell Labs. Bell Labs. Yeah, you could take the, the mic. Yeah. And then the, two years ago, about two years ago, she retired from her professional work and she became the executive director of Buddhist Global Relief, which she does in a fully voluntary capacity. Yeah. First of all, I would like to thank um, Venable Hanshaw and James for having us here tonight. And thank you to all of you for joining us tonight. Um, I'm very, very grateful for this opportunity to share with you um, the work of Buddhist Global Relief. Um, but before I get started with the presentation, I would like to give you a quick um, background of my involvement with uh, Buddhist Global Relief. Um, We've been in existence for two and a half years now. And the first year, um, I was very fortunate to be invited um, to be a, a board member, as well as um, uh, the chair of the projects committee. And I was involved with leading the effort to implement our projects. Since um, in June of 2009, I took an early retirement from my 28-year career as a software engineer with Bell Labs, AT&T, and its subsidiaries. Um, around that time, uh, Buddhist Global Relief needed a full-time um, person to help coordinate the work, both internally to oversee the work of the committees, as well as the communication with outside organizations. And I, I was very, um, and I, was very, very happy to accept the, the position as um, executive director of the organization. Um, I feel extremely honored and privileged to be working for this great organization under the visionary leadership of our teacher, <laughs> Venable Bhikkhu Bodhi, as well as our board of advisors with Venable Henshaw and Bill Fonsdale from the West Coast and um, to serve the poor of the world. So, um, so at this point, I would like to um, move into the PowerPoint um, presentation. Okay, who, who, who we are. Buddhist Global Relief is the community of Buddhists and friends of Buddhism who seek to give expression to the Buddha's great compassion by um, deploying projects throughout the world to help the poor and the underprivileged. Um, as Bonte had mentioned before, we are an all-volunteer organization staffed ent entirely by volunteers. There's no paid staff in the organization. Um, in the fall of 2007, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote an article for the uh, Buddha Dharma magazine in which he challenged American Buddhists to face the immensity of suffering in this world. Um, inspired by his message, in May of 2008, a number of um, Venbo Bikubodi students um, joined hearts and hands to set up Buddhist Global Relief um, as a vehicle for addressing the plight of people afflicted by poverty 
hunger and social neglect. And this is the quote from that article that the Venerable wrote for the Buddha Dharma magazine. Um, the special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up for themselves. Our mission is to provide relief to the poor and needy throughout the world, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, gender, or religion, with special focus on providing food aid to those afflicted by hunger and chronic malnutrition. The problem BGR has chosen to focus on is global hunger. According to the World Food Program each year, over 10 million people died of hunger or hunger-related diseases, and over half of them are children. And each day, over 10, 100 million people wonder where the next meal will come from. The Buddha's teaching often stresses the importance of giving food. In the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha said that in giving food, one gives five things to the recipients. Life, beauty, happiness, strength, and mental clarity. In giving these five things, one in turn partakes of life, beauty, happiness, strength, and mental clarity, whether in this world or in the heavenly realm. Here's how we implement our mission. We BGR raise funds for food relief and other projects from both private donors and philanthropic organizations. We work in partnership with agencies and relief organizations already operating on the ground. Our primary goal is to fight hunger and poverty in the developing world. BGR also provides grants to organizations in impoverished communities to meet the need for nutrition, clean water, education, and supporting infrastructure. We also seek long-term solutions to promote better methods of food production, management, and distribution. Wherever we work, we respect the local culture and do not proselytize. We respect the, the, the belief of those whom we serve and seek to work in harmony with people of all faiths. The projects we take on assist victims of sudden disaster who need emergency food aid, those hurt by food shortages to develop stable strategies of food security. We also seek to provide emergency food relief, 
As you can see, this is the picture of our beneficiaries in Myanmar from the, cyc uh, the cyclone Narches. We meet the need for clean water to enhance local infrastructure and to support education. This project map lists the number of the different places around the world where BGR has our projects from Asia, um, Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar, to uh, India, Sri Lanka, to Central Asia, Afghanistan and Pakistan, to Africa, Niger, Mali, South Africa, and we have our first U.S. project. We also um, help with the, uh, the Haiti earthquake in um, 2009, in January 2009. Yeah. The BGR project snapshot lists all the different types of projects that we implement from food aid, and these are all the various projects under the category of food aid in the various countries to Women Empowerment Initiative to Education. And these are the countries of Asia, um, Central Asia, Africa, and the US. We collaborate with a wide range of partners from some large, well-known um, International organizations such as Save the Children, the Red Cross, and Helen Keller International, to mid-sized organizations such as Lotus Outreach, Central Asia Institute, to grassroots smaller organizations such as Sabadaya Women's Movement, uh, Dharmagiri Outreach, and Garden Harvest. To give you a better idea of the work that we're doing, I would like to um, give you, uh, share with you some detail, details about some of our projects. In Cambodia, we're providing critical rights support to girls that are at risk. Um, and we've also, uh, we provide uh, both rights support as well as a scholarship to these girls and their families. And these are the photos we received from our, our partner, Lotus Outreach. In Vietnam, we are providing meals for hospital patients who are hungry. Typically, in, in Vietnam, hospital patients do not receive food. So not only are they sick, they're also hungry. So um, to overcome the situation, the, the, the Red Cross basically stepped in to help. And our um, grant was providing um, tofu and vegetable for a, a 500-bed um, hospital for an entire year for $2,000. Well, of course, you know, uh, the Red Cross would, would, would have volunteers to help cook and boil the water. 
And so you, as you will see, so these are the, the, the Red Cross volunteers. The rise came from um, the donations from the lo local government. And this, the tofu and vegetable, came from the funding from Buddhist Global Relief. And these are the lines for the food for the patients. And they have a, you know, a, a children's um, section in the hospital. And as you can see, the, the conditions is, is, very, is very poor. In Sri Lanka, we're financing women's livelihood projects to provide income for themselves as well as their families. For example, we provide them with, um, in this case, the food processor so they can make food to sell. And, and as a result, they, they get some income for themselves and the families. And what they do is if they have um, extra food, they would, sell, they would give it away to the poor people in the community. And our partner um, in Sri Lanka is Sabodaya Women's Movement. In Myanmar, we're providing relief for families affected by cyclone nauseous, and most of them are children. So these are our beneficiaries. As you can see, um, they're distributing rice to the victims of the cyclone notches. And we received these photos from um, Save the Children organization. Again, in Sri Lanka, we were providing relief for internally displaced people from the civil war with food and clean water. Now we move to Africa in Niger and Mali, West Africa. We are providing critical nutritional care to pregnant women and children in the form of vitamin A and micronutrients. And in Niger, it turns out 25% of the children do not reach their fifth birthday because they do not have vitamin A um, and other um, micronutrients. So our uh, grand... Um, provide basically for um, the micronutrients. As you can see, we have these, um, Helen Keller trained these um, local community workers to teach the parents on how to give the children doses of, of vitamins. These are like you know, babies too. And in India, we're providing tuition and school supplies to enable migrant child laborers to ask, attend school for this, the first time. These were children that were in brick kins alongside with their parents from 15 to 17 hours a day without having any chance for attending, for attending school. As you can see, this, uh, the uniform and backpacks were provided by grants from Buddhist Global Relief as well as school meals 
And, and one of the grandmothers asked if she could also have the uniform as well as the backpack so she can attend school with these children. <laughs> And in the U.S., we are supporting local farms that grow fresh produce for emergency food, ag uh, for emergency food agencies, soup kitchens throughout the U.S., for distribution throughout the U.S. And our partner is Garden Harvest, based in Baltimore. Our goal as an organization is to serve the poor of the world. As we have mentioned before, BGR is an all-volunteer organization, and we're committed to ensuring that we use our resources as efficiently as possible to provide as much assistance um, to the people that we serve. As you can see, in 2009, 2010, 90... I'm sorry. Um, 5% of our donations go toward direct program costs with 4% fundraising and 1% administration. And most of our administration costs are, uh, are costs for uh, printing brochures, for distribution, as you can see in the back. Um, we have our first annual report, which we also printed copies to, to give to our donors. Um, as well as like mailing out um, donations letters, which we hope in 2011 to start going electronically to save the expenses. BGR is very fortunate to uh, be guided by strong leadership. Uh, BGR was founded by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi and served uh, by the Board of Directors and the Board of Advisors. As you can see, Venable Hanshaw and, and Gil Fransdale um, are the advisors from the West Coast. Um, and then we have the, the staff as well as our volunteers, members and volunteers. In everything we do, we aspire to strong values of faith, compassion, service, moral rectitude, and self-cultivation, integrity and prudence with respect to our finances, and respect and collaboration with each other, our partners, as well as the people that we serve. If you would like to join us to serve the poor of the world, here are some of the ways that you could help us through donations, through um, holding joint events to benefit um, you know, uh, both organizations by becoming a virtual volunteer. And at this point, um, our organization needs help with um, Basically, IT skills, we have, uh, you can visit us on the web. We have a, a website which basically needs a lot of work um, to update, you know, projects, constant projects information. 
or you can help spread the word about VGR by um, distributing brochures, posters to your temple, Dharma centers, or monk friends. We are guided by the words of our founder as an experience of suffering shared by many. Okay. I'm sorry. It was too fast. We are also um, inspired by the vows of Samantha Badra. And for more information about our organization and the work that we do, our projects, please visit us at www.buddhistglobalrelief.org. Thank you so much for your time. So, um, in speaking with, with Hungshur, oh, Hungshur, with uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, earlier this afternoon, it was, it was really inspiring to, to hear uh, not only about these projects, but just how impeccably the whole thing is run. And just to know that there's a, a Buddhist organization that you can trust will bring whatever you have to share or, or deliver whatever you have to share to people who will really benefit uh, from it and working in partnership with all of these organizations that are already on the, uh, on the ground. And uh, I was really inspired. He, he said that his first response, or it happened when, uh, when after the, the tsunami, uh, he, he, he felt he had to do something, having lived in Sri Lanka all those years. And he, he was looking for different organizations of who was responding. And he saw all these Christian organizations, beautiful, uh, very caring and committed organizations and, and Jewish organizations and Muslim organizations. And he kept on looking for Buddhist organizations that were actually doing things that uh, could reach people in need. And there was Sarvodia and, uh, and, 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 and one other small foundation. And he said, gee, you know, what can we do about this picture? And uh, so that... It, it's 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 uh, moving to see how how that caring of the heart expresses it itself into uh, manifesting into action, and uh, I really want to um, commend and appreciate you so much because your work also has inspired many others to say, oh, what is what can we do with our practice here? So um, thank you for not only all your translation but your manifestation of, of the Dharma. Any closing words? Uh, well, I, first, I, I really want to thank James for offering to use this meditation meeting tonight as an opportunity for us to present the work of Buddhist Global Relief and also for giving you the opportunity to share in our work through making a contribution. I also want to thank Venerable Hung who's Is he here right now? I was actually looking for him before, but it seemed he was 
in his own personal room, so I didn't want to disturb him. But also a thankfulable Hangshur for making the facilities available to us. And Venerable Hangshur is also a member of our advisory panel. And I thank all of you for coming and for listening to this presentation. And I want to thank also my two colleagues from Buddhist Global Relief, Sylvie, is she in the back, oh, and Kim, who just gave the uh, slideshow. Thank you. So let's uh, just end with a, a short loving kindness and uh, sharing our blessings. Just feeling how fortunate we all are. All of us, we all will have roofs over our head tonight, food in our bellies tomorrow, living in Berkeley or the Bay Area, having community, like-minded friendship, and the Dharma, the incredible blessings that we all receive from life. And what to do then to share our good fortune with, with others, not just because our, our heart is moved by their plight, but because it feels so good to share. It feels so good for the heart to give out of a sense of connection and generosity and love. So may our coming here together be a benefit to all beings everywhere. As I want to be happy, may all find happiness. As I want to be free of danger and harm, may all be safe from inner and outer harm. As I want to open my heart to loving kindness, may all feel the love that's inside and share it well. As I want to wake up from my confusion, may all wake up, know the highest happiness and peace. May all beings be happy, safe, and liberated. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your hospitality. Have a wonderful week. And again, there's baskets in the front and in the back. And feel, if you put something in the basket when you do, let it be a practice of joy. And if you want to make checks out, it could go to Buddhist Global Relief. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.